From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, I'm Lisa Hamilton, and this is CaseyCast. At the Casey Foundation, one of the ways that we work to support strong children and families is by producing an annual report called the Kids Count Data Book. This report equips policymakers and child and family advocates with the latest data on how kids and families around the nation and in their state are faring. Earlier this month, we released our 30th data book, and this year's report continues to examine the vital role that health plays in shaping a child's overall well-being. Exploring this intersection between health and well-being is a familiar topic for today's guest. David Nichols is a pediatrician and the president and CEO of the American Board of Pediatrics. A longstanding and leading champion of higher standards for children's health care, David served as a professor at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for 28 years. His involvement with the American Board of Pediatrics spans more than three decades, including seven years and counting at the organization's helm. In addition to his medical career, we're delighted that Dr. Nichols is a trustee of the Casey Foundation and a proud partner in our pursuit of working to build a brighter future for America's children. Welcome, Dr. Nichols. It's great to have you on CaseyCast. Well, thanks so much for having me. Why don't we start talking about a topic that has been in the news a lot over the last several years, and that's health insurance coverage. I'd like to talk first about some of the health trends that we're seeing in this year's Kids Count Data Book. First, there seems to be good news that we're seeing record rates of children with health insurance, which is wonderful. Um, but I'd like to hear you as a pediatrician talk about why it's so important for children to have uh, health insurance and what it means for their overall well-being. Uh, sure. Um, this is a critical aspect of uh, health care for children. Uh, in a nutshell, it is the gateway to accessing the healthcare system. Um, if you think about what children need, the vast majority are, are healthy for sure, but that doesn't mean that they don't need health care. Um, I'll just give a few examples. One example is the access to professional screening. Vision screening is closely associated with better school performance. Mm -hmm. Lead screening is another example. We had a courageous pediatrician in Flint, Michigan, able to detect lead poisoning in the water system and uh, really save a community, uh, not just children in the community. We're going through a public health uh, crisis now with vaccine avoidance and uh, vaccine hesitancy, and uh, we're seeing measles break out for the first time in my professional career in, in many places in the United States, and uh, pediatricians play a, a great and important role in seeing that kids are getting vaccinated. Uh, maybe one more example of the importance of health insurance is just uh, the ability to afford medicine. Most kids, again, grow up healthy, but m most people don't make it through you know, 20 years without needing a prescription for something. And the ability to have health coverage uh, does make it possible for parents to afford uh, important medications. That, thank you for highlighting all of those. You know, the work that the Casey Foundation does around policy uh, has, we hope, contributed to the increase in uh, the Children's Health Insurance Program. And I know that's mm -hmm. a program that's near and dear to your heart. Um, there might even be uh, changes in the usage of um, the Children's Health Insurance Program, but we know how vital it is uh, to, to helping lots of low-income children um, get the health care that they need. Is there anything you'd like to say about uh, the CHIP program and its usage these days? 
Yeah, yeah. No, I'm very happy to congratulate Casey and proud of Casey uh, for the work that it has done in partnership with other organizations to try and ensure both the availability of CHIP and the availability of Medicaid, uh, which are foundational insurance programs for children. Unfortunately, we're approaching a a world in which 50% of children in the United States are, are poor. And without these government-supported insurance programs, they would not have access to care. And while we're highlighting the good news, I I feel compelled to just raise a note of caution. Uh, It was just last week that uh, several organizations raised concern about uh, decreasing enrollment in CHIP and Medicaid, and we'll have to watch that very closely. Um, Why don't we turn to another uh, of the positive trends we think we're seeing in the data book uh, in recent Mm -hmm. years, and that's the drop in the percentage of teens who abuse alcohol and drugs. Um, What do you think is behind this positive trend? Right. Uh, So we we did see a small decline nationally in the use of alcohol and, and drugs, and this is certainly a positive direction. I always want to be cautious about assigning cause and effect, but I'll comment on a few things that I think are working. One issue, of course, is with the opioid epidemic, every physician in America is highly sensitized uh, to the uh, benefits, but also now the risks of prescribing pain medication. Mm. And in fact, many states uh, require uh, physicians to uh, take and pass an extra course on pain management. Uh, as a condition of retaining the license to practice. And part of the message that's gone out to physicians is the importance of uh, considering alternatives uh, to uh, narcotics, only prescribing drugs that are likely to be used and instructing patients to uh, discard unused controlled substances that have been used for uh, pain control. And we're hopeful that these messages are taking effect, and I think they are, in fact, uh, taking effect. On the alcohol side, uh, uh, one of the very exciting things from the perspective of pediatricians is that parents are finally getting the tool to actually affect the uh, drinking habits of teenagers. Uh, and yeah. So there's a body of literature that's emerged that's based on the concept of uh, motivational interviewing. So it uh, essentially says that you talk to your teen and focus on their strength, uh, focus on their abilities, concentrate on coping mechanisms and and setting up a plan to deal with drinking situations, Mm -hmm. and using all those tools uh, to really help the teenager self-evaluate and self-regulate their behaviors. And uh, those tools have turned out to be remarkably effective. Uh, so uh, I'm celebrating the the uh, uh, efficacy and impact of parenting. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's fantastic, and I think gives lots of uh, folks hope that um, there aren't yeah. just you know wide scale public health interventions that can make a difference, but also the role individual parents have in the lives of their kids are going to be able to help us um, turn the curve on these issues. So that's great to hear that they're 
there are lots of different strategies that could could be helpful. But you mentioned the opioid crisis, and I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about that. We certainly know um, that while there might be decreases in um, alcohol and drug use among teens, we're certainly seeing a, a huge spike in opioid use across the country. Could you talk more about what this means for families, um, the children that are growing up in, in families where even parents are struggling with addiction? Oh, sure. Uh, of course, uh, the scourge of opioid addiction affects families deeply, not just the uh, person who's addicted. And when children are in a household that includes an addicted uh, adult, uh, their lives become destabilized in a whole variety of ways. There is uh, uncertain uh, income. There is a lack of supervision. There is uh, inadequate attention uh, to the uh, schooling and learning needs uh, of the child. Uh, so the environment becomes uh, highly unstable, uh, and uh, of course, some of these children are ultimately going to uh, end up in uh, kinship care or mm-hmm. foster care uh, because the parents are not able to uh, manage uh, parenting. I'll comment on perhaps one other aspect of this that uh, I think is uh, often uh, lost in the conversation, and that is the potential creation of a absence syndrome or withdrawal syndrome in a newborn. So uh, when a pregnant woman is addicted and uh, delivers, most of those babies will uh, have uh, symptoms of withdrawal for a uh, period of time. This requires hospitalization for a period, and then we've now developed ways of, of managing this on an outpatient basis, but it's still a you know significant health concern and health issue for the newborn. Mm. So there are a variety of ways in which even though uh, children seem to be not on the leading edge of this uh, crisis, that is young children, nevertheless, they are affected mm. when adults in their world uh, are addicted. Mm. Well, you brought up um, newborns, and I'd love to talk about um, another of the, the findings in the data book um, that relates to our youngest children. Uh, we're seeing more babies born at a low birth weight, and you might be able to even connect that um, to what you were just discussing in the opioid crisis. But unfortunately, we know that the U.S. is an outlier among other affluent countries where babies are less likely to be born at a low birth weight. Could you, one, talk about what might be happening to to drive um, this uh, this disturbing trend and um, what the ramifications are for kids and families and what we might need to do to, to focus on changing that. Right. Well, there are a number of things that are associated with preterm birth and uh, low birth weight, and uh, some are modifiable problems and, and others are, are more deep-seated and, and, and lasting problems. So I'll just list a few uh, that uh, potential associations with uh, with low birth weight. We'll start off with teenage pregnancy, uh, and I know the Casey Foundation has had a, a focus on trying to reduce uh, teenage pregnancies, and and with success, I would I, I would add. Right. There is, of course, the smoking and the drug use we were just talking about mm-hmm. is um, part of the constellation of factors that uh, may lead to a preterm birth. But then we get to more deep-seated issues that um, we as a society have to confront. I I go back to poverty, uh, which afflicts many children and and families. And uh, when a a newborn is brought into an impoverished family, the risk of that uh, newborn being born ahead of the due date uh, is higher. Mm. Uh, And, you know, we have to face that. And 
Again, uh, Casey is to be congratulated and focusing on poverty as, as one of the ways that its alleviation could uh, strengthen uh, families and, and give kids a better shot in life. A few other things for nutrition, stress, depression, all of those things are associated with preterm births and uh, to the extent that we can create a safe, secure, reasonably supportive environment around a pregnant future mom and the family that surrounds her, uh, we will be able to turn the tide here. And as you point out, this is not an impossibility. Mm -hmm. Other countries uh, have been have been able to do this. Now, the impact of, of course, being born at uh, low birth weight is quite profound, and it starts with a higher risk of death in the newborn period. So mm -hmm. it, it can be a potentially fatal event mm -hmm. uh, if the infant is born severely uh, underweight and, and preterm. The advances in neonatal and perinatal care in the period that I've been a pediatrician are simply astounding, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, we're, we're able to keep more and more of these babies alive, but it often requires heroic uh, health care interventions mm -hmm. to, to do so. Mm -hmm. Now, for those who survive, I, I suppose I would divide the impact in, into two categories. So first, there's the impact on the growing child, uh, and that impact is usually manifested by the risk of neurological disabilities of various kinds and mm -hmm. intellectual disabilities. This, of course, uh, has long-standing impact on, on their lives. For those who escape that fate and able to uh, make it into adulthood without that uh, disability during childhood, there is still a risk uh, that can be traced back to uh, being born uh, at low birth weight and preterm, and, and that is that there's a, a higher incidence of high blood pressure uh, in adults who were born preterm, and there's also a higher risk of uh, uh, type 2 diabetes, uh, mm. insulin-resistant diabetes. So it has very wide-ranging uh, effects, and we all together as a society need to be able to do everything we can to allow babies to uh, grow to term before they're where they're delivered. Mm. It, it uh, certainly sounds like uh, there's uh, significant reasons why we ought to pay uh, attention uh, to these issues. And um, we disaggregate the data in the data book by race. And this is um, one of many indicators that um, show profound racial disparities um, uh, among children. Uh, is there more you'd like to say about why, why we might be seeing um, racial disparities for, for this low birth weight? Certainly, the incidence of, of people of color being affected by the variety of issues you talked about. Right. That's right, Lisa. So I think um, many of the issues that I uh, mentioned, those deeper issues, do have a higher prevalence amongst people of color. And this is part of the array of healthcare disparities that we have to face in the United States. I will go back to poverty. Uh, it's more prevalent uh, in uh, people of color and African-American and Native American populations, Hispanic populations in particular, the issue of poor nutrition, the issue of stress and racism, those are all factors uh, that I believe uh, have a role to play in, in the disparity of people of color having uh, higher incidence of preterm births. Hmm. I know one of the programs uh, and policies that Casey's invested in for quite a while are home visiting programs that mm -hmm. uh, I think can have uh, make a difference here. Could you talk about what home visiting programs are and how they how they might help us change these kinds of statistics? 
Right. So the home visiting programs involve uh, often a prenatal contact between the visiting nurse and the mom, the future mom. The contact uh, establishes uh, what the visiting uh, nurse will be able to do and uh, begins to build the relationship. Uh, And much of healthcare for new parents involves just explaining what's going to happen with this miraculous little baby in front of them uh, as they're developing day by day uh, Mm -hmm. and what the baby's needs are going to be and what to anticipate uh, to be prepared for changes in sleep pattern or changes in eating habits and new diets and uh, what happens if the baby uh, doesn't seem to uh, want to uh, latch on to the breast for breastfeeding. There are, all, there are all kinds of things that parents have to be ready for, and a lot of it also is just encouragement. Uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're doing the right thing. You're a good mom. You're really uh, taking care of your baby well. And that alone goes a long, long way, especially in a, in a world where uh, family networks are not often not as tight as they were uh, generations ago. Mm-hmm. And, Young parents don't have a you know, deep uh, family network to provide the support and the experience. We found, and the literature supports, that these programs are highly effective. Uh, and um, one of the ways we know this is that they uh, have been shown to decrease the incidence of child abuse, as an example, mm. by uh, having this very straightforward type of uh, support uh, that parents can take advantage of. Sounds like it's a... Uh, an intervention we all ought to keep uh, supporting um, because it seems mm-hmm. like it has multiple um, benefits even before babies are born and uh, and as they are uh, becoming toddlers. So thank you for that insight on the, the benefits of that. So we've talked a bit about individual um, data trends uh, this year, but I'd like to talk a, a little about the differences between generations. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the Kids Count Data Book. And as somebody who's a a leading voice in caring for kids and their well-being, um, I'm curious what you see as the issues that might be different since the time we started uh, this data book. How are the current generation of kids, Generation Z, uh, faring differently than uh, millennials? Well, it's a a fascinating story, actually. Um, I think all of us have Generation Z kids in our in our world, as well as millennials mm-hmm. in our world. So you can actually observe those uh, differences firsthand. I'll just comment on the healthcare challenges, perhaps, and uh, note that there are, there are many other uh, things that uh, one could talk about. But in terms of healthcare, things that we're, we're focused on in, in pediatrics as uh, challenges that have to be uh, met and solved. Number one, I would list uh, the high incidence and growing incidence of obesity Mm. uh, in uh, children of this generation, and many reasons for that, uh, food deserts, the decline of uh, physical education and recess, and, you know, opportunities for kids to exercise, Mm -hmm. Uh, and, of course, the nature of the food intake uh, that is often unhealthy in in many uh, neighborhoods. So this is a, a big concern for us. Um, we used to think of uh, type 2 diabetes, which I mentioned, I think, earlier in the conversation as an adult onset problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is now a pediatric disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a pediatric disease that is skyrocketing, you know, particularly in the uh, African-American uh, and Native American communities, mm-hmm. uh, often related to obesity. 
what's the incidence of, of obesity in, in kids these days? Well, it's it's fairly high. Uh, I uh, would say it's you know in the it's a ten to thirty percent range, mm. depending on the community mm. uh, that you're in, uh, and it's you know much much higher than we've ever seen any previous generation experience. Mm. Um, of course, it's it's not just children; it's adults too. Uh, <laughs> the adults in their world are also larger uh, mm. than previous generations were. I think another area that is uh, worth mentioning is the stresses around social media and the uh, what I'll call the digital media addiction that even young babies now face. Mm. So uh, I don't know if you have seen babies holding their iPads right. uh, in the shopping cart. Yeah, we uh, have. Okay. <laughs> and if you try to take that device away from them, you will uh, get an earful typically. Mm-hmm. So. Parents have to confront this, and uh, pediatricians uh, typically recommend that parents not give their children devices in the first couple of years of life mm. uh, because of the powerful effect this has, uh, these tools have, in creating uh, the need to have the colors and the lights and the flashing images in front of you all the time. Mm. Uh, I think a third thing that is different about Gen Z or, or that we're, we're tracking and following uh, is the way that this current generation of youth think about gender identity. Mm. Uh, we have a growing uh, transgender youth uh, population uh, that is receiving health care. Mm-hmm. The pediatric community has had to adapt uh, mm. to that uh, with um, clinics and uh, programs to care for these kids. And this was not something that existed uh, 30 years ago when, when Kids Count mm. started. Mm. And the last thing I'll, I'll comment on uh, is probably the biggest public health concern right now is the uh, mental health crisis uh, that uh, children are, are facing. The latest data from the Department of Health and Human Services indicate that we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% of girls, certainly, who have had a major depressive episode major depressive episode now uh, in the last year. And a a major depressive episode is one that interferes with functioning. Mm. Uh, And, uh, of course, the uh, lethal outcome of that is a suicide Mm. uh, attempt that is uh, completed. Uh, 50% of adult mental health problems begin in childhood or adolescence. Mm. Uh, So we we have very substantial problems going on in mental health uh, of the uh, children today. Uh, anxiety is mm-hmm. another uh, diagnosis highly prevalent mm-hmm. uh, in uh, kids today. I think you told me at a board meeting once that 50% of the doctor's visits were related to mental health a couple of years That's right. ago. That's stunning. Yeah. yeah, I would see the the general pediatric practice now uh, is um, dominated by children with behavioral or mental health concerns. Uh, being presented by the uh, parents. And there's a whole long uh, list of the types of concerns that parents um, have about their children's behavior and and their mental uh, health. But this is what pediatricians are spending a great deal of uh, time uh, Mm. trying parents with. Do we have the infrastructure we need in order to to deal with children's mental health in this way? It sounds like pediatricians are certainly prepared to be on the front lines of this, but I would suspect there are other um, practitioners and providers that we need to have to, to help support 
kids through this, even in schools? No. I mean, the infrastructure is woefully inadequate. The providers, uh, it really doesn't matter what kind they are, whether they're you know, school nurses, uh, whether they are physician's assistants, uh, pediatricians, family physicians, psychologists. The entire system is overwhelmed mm. right now. And there, again, there are many reasons for it. The, simply the numbers of children who are presenting with this has overwhelmed the system. And frankly, the financial support to manage this crisis has not been forthcoming. Uh, there's uh, simply not enough resources being devoted to this for us to uh, really provide adequate care for, for these kids. I think pediatricians are are certainly doing the very best they can. And the child psychiatrists who, whose specialty this uh, really would fall under, uh, they're just far too few of them to begin to be able to manage this. And they, they've acknowledged this and, and are partnering with pediatricians uh, in many ways to try and uh, help all of us who, are, who didn't train in child psychiatry learn enough of what we need to know to uh, at least do the first-line care. Mm. Well, you've uh, certainly identified some really important emerging issues that um, we don't just need to to manage, but also figure out how to how to track and make sure that we've got uh, the right sort of data in order to help mm-hmm. inform uh, our decisions, um, both individual decisions, but also you know policy decisions as it um, relates mm-hmm. to children. So, thank you for that that perspective on how things are changing uh, for kids. Um, Part of what we we know good data relates to is often the census. And uh, we have had lots of conversations uh, about uh, the upcoming census and why it's a a focal point for Casey. Uh, You know, it might not seem uh, related to child health and well-being, but um, you are a passionate advocate for um, understanding why the census is important and have uh, been a leader in helping the American Academy of Pediatrics and American Board of um, uh, pediatrics think about how they can help promote an accurate uh, count uh, of children who are the the largest um, part of our population that are under uh, counted. So, could you talk about why you think the census is so important for pediatricians to get engaged with? Sure, uh, this is a, a critical moment uh, in our history. Uh, children have been undercounted in the census for uh, quite some time, and the. Uh, Mental health uh, challenges that children are facing uh, is just one example uh, where knowing precisely how many children are affected by this and making sure the programs that are needed to support them uh, get uh, adequate uh, funding, uh, all of that is tied to the census. Uh, Children rely on the uh, types of uh, programs we uh, talked about earlier in the conversation, uh, CHIP, and Medicaid and uh, SNAP, Supplemental uh, Nutrition Program, and, and, and many others. Um, and those various programs uh, do depend ultimately on an accurate count uh, of children. Uh, so if we care about children's health, we got to count them all first. That's why we're passionate about the census. Well, fantastic. And, I, and pediatricians are such trusted advisors in the the lives of families and to have them on the front line of this issue, really helping parents um, access the digital resources they'll need in order to fill out an online census and understand what the questions are. It's it's really great to have um, your leadership and the leadership of your field in, in helping us get to an accurate count. That's fantastic. 
Well, um, it's Casey that's been at the lead here, so we're, oh, we're delighted to support uh, all the work that Casey is doing, too. Oh, thank you so much. Um, well, the last question I want to ask is really connecting child well-being to parents. So often in, in this country, we think we can help children without paying attention to the families or the communities that they are growing up in. Uh, could you give us some, some final insight into the ways that the circumstances of parents are influencing the lives of their kids? Well, the best predictor of a, a healthy, successful, and resilient child is to grow up in a loving, supportive, intact family with adults who care. If we can provide that, we're 90% the way there to uh, making sure that we have healthy children. The circumstances that uh, parents uh, face are, are challenging for many. They range from the economic insecurity that, that some parents have, uh, their own uh, health problems uh, that some parents have, uh, uh, the fact that um, oh, we, we have uh, children who, in fact, do not grow up with their birth parents around them uh, and uh, are uh, in uh, foster care and uh, kinship care and other places that have, have been called upon to uh, fill a gap that the parents were, were not able to uh, fill. And I think the um, underlying predictor that I'm trying to highlight perhaps throughout this entire conversation of, of what it means to be a healthy child does ultimately lead back to the environment that the parent can provide. Mm -hmm. Pediatricians are there to help and support parents to be a, a guide and to um, be an advisor, sometimes to provide you know, medications and active interventions, but mostly it's to uh, just to help guide along the way to the extent that we can empower parents to uh, be effective agents uh, in their children's best uh, interest. Uh, will go a long way to uh, having a healthy uh, group of uh, Gen Z children grow up around us. Thank you so much for that perspective, and, and thank you for all of the uh, insight you have offered, everything from how we can make sure our children are born at healthy birth weight to helping them avoid alcohol and drugs as teens and having the kind of uh, health care that they need uh, throughout their lives and even giving us perspective on some of the emerging trends that you're seeing we need to pay attention to, like mental health and obesity. Um, I, for one, am delighted that we get to partner with you as a trustee of the foundation and even more excited to have your, your leadership in the field to help all guide all of our pediatricians um, as they support our kids to be healthy. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your insights with us. Thank you, Lisa. I really enjoyed the conversation. Wonderful. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us as well. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, please rate our show on Apple Podcasts to help others find us. You can ask questions and leave us feedback on Twitter by using the CaseyCast hashtag. To learn more about Casey and the work of our guests, you can find our show notes at aecf.org forward slash podcast. And you can download the 2019 Kids Count data book at www.aecf.org forward slash databook. Until next time, I wish all of America's kids and all of you a bright future.